James Garfield was a lay preacher and principal of a denominational college. They say he was ambidextrous, that he could write in one hand in Greek and at the same time write in the other hand in Latin. Quite amazing, isn't it? In 1880, he was elected president of the U.S., but after six months, he was shot in the back. At the hospital, the doctor probed the wound with his little finger, and when he couldn't find the bullet, he stuck in another probe and kept examining, trying to find it. But when he couldn't, the president was transported back to Washington. He grew very weak. Teams of doctors tried to locate the bullet, probing the wound over and over again. In desperation, they asked Alexander Graham Bell, who was working on a little device that we call the telephone, to see if he could locate the bullet. He too failed. The president hung on until September when he finally died, but not from the wound, but from all of the probing which introduced infection into his body. And so it is with those who dwell on their sin or the sin of others and refuse to release it. It's not the sin, like the bullet, that often kills, but the constant reopening of the wound. Confessing to God and those we sin against should end the guilt and our soul's anguish. As we begin this morning, our part two on forgiveness, it's very important for us to understand what forgiveness is. So let me share with you a few things of what I believe forgiveness is. First, forgiveness is a lifestyle choice. We choose to live a life of gracious, intentional reconciliation. Like breathing, it's inhaling God's grace for our own shortcomings and exhaling grace for those who sin against us. Usually the most difficult person to forgive is ourselves. In a dream, Martin Luther found himself being attacked by Satan. The devil unrolled a long scroll containing a list of Luther's sins and held it before him. On reaching the end of the scroll, Luther asked the devil, Is that all? No came the reply, and a second scroll was thrust in front of him. Then, after the second, came a third. Finally, the devil had no more. You've missed something, Luther exclaimed. Quickly write on each of the scrolls 
The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, we can only forgive ourselves and others as we understand Jesus' grace to forgive us. Secondly, forgiveness desires an audience with our soul whenever an offense or the memory of one stirs up feelings of anger or resentment. Forgiveness is a serious matter. We can make the mistake of believing that some offenses are so great as to be beyond the capacity of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not natural for us. To forgive is one of those inverted kingdom principles. It's like to gain life, one must give up their life. Or to be great, one must become a servant. Or to find strength, we first find our weakness. We must forgive to be free ourselves. Thirdly, forgiveness is a call to bear injustice rather than to seek vengeance or suffer from bitterness. It is a decision motivated by Christ's love. Even as Jesus prayed for his executioners to be forgiven, General Oglethorpe once said to John Wesley, quote, I never forgive and I never forget. To which Wesley replied, then, sir, I hope you never sin. Is forgiveness con conditional? Most of us have been taught that forgiveness is a personal requirement in all circumstances. But listen closely to this. Forgiveness that heals the breach in a relationship requires confession on the part of the offender. This is true both in our relationship with God and with others. Notice the following verses. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Luke 17, 3 says, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Just like a torn piece of cloth is repaired with a needle and thread, so are relationships restored, which have been fractured by an offense. How are they restored? Like a needle and thread, they are restored with repentance and forgiveness. So you ask, 
What should I do if a person has wronged me but will not acknowledge it? If we say, I forgive you, it cannot mean that integrity is suddenly restored to the relationship. Why? Because the breach is not repaired. Forgiveness then shifts from the integrity of the relationship to the integrity of the offending party. In other words, you willfully choose to bear the cost of the offense and focus on maintaining your own honor by exercising love towards the other person. You must fight the temptation to become bitter. You do this in spite of the fact that you have no power to resolve the other of their offense if they won't acknowledge it. The bottom line is that we can only be responsible for ourselves by bearing the offense, ready to extend love, and ready to leave judgment to God. This is the message of Jesus. And it's the message in his admonition to us to, quote, love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Matthew chapter 5. It's the story of Calvary. So what is the biblical process of seeking forgiveness? First, there must be a clear acknowledgement of the offense, then a request for forgiveness. This is why the one-size-fits-all statement, if I've offended you, please forgive me, simply won't work. Neither will the statement, I'm sorry. This statement doesn't actually admit to any wrong and it doesn't name the offense. Be specific. A way to tell if the statement works is, does it settle in your soul? To be offended in the biblical sense means the offending party broke one of God's commands or spiritual laws. It doesn't mean they hurt my feelings by telling me something that I didn't want to hear. The dictionary meaning for the word offended is to cause to feel upset, annoyed, or resentful as a result of a perceived insult. Far too many Christians use this phrase, you offended me, as leverage to hear what they want from the other person. If the truth hurts, you need to be set free from what has bound you. Also, an offense which was public must be confessed in public, and private offenses should usually be confessed privately. 
There have been many times in my life where I've had to acknowledge my wrong to a whole group of people. A couple years ago, I was sitting in a hockey dressing room getting ready to play when a discussion came up and I listened for a few minutes and then I made a statement. I just blurted it out and right away my spirit was grieved and I knew that I had said something that was wrong. The Spirit of God began to work on my heart and I knew what I needed to do. I needed to stand up in that dressing room and call everyone's attention and say, I said this and I was wrong and I ask you to forgive me. I want to tell you, that was extremely hard. But finally, I wrestled up the courage to stand up and do just that. And immediately, I was flooded with the peace of God. It didn't matter to me what other people in the dressing room thought or felt at that moment. It mattered to me what God thought. The sweet sense of God's refreshment comes to our souls when we publicly or privately ask forgiveness. You may actually create wounds in others by confessing to people who don't need to know. And I encourage you to give thought and wise counsel before making that mistake. Thirdly, the responsibility for initiating reconciliation belongs to the one who realizes there is a problem. Biblically, there is no justification for either the offended or the offender to wait for the other one to take the first step. This is simply pride getting in the way. Isn't it true that we all sometimes have blinders on when it comes to our own sin? We may not even realize that we've offended someone. Therefore, we need to have the courage to go and speak to a brother who has done something or said something that has offended us, or for someone to come to us. This is a command, not a request. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So by not obeying this command, we sin. How can I say that it's a sin? The Bible says in James 4:17, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If you've been waiting for someone to come and confess their fault with you, stewing over it only hurts you. 
and you are actually going against God's word. Finally, an unforgiving heart actually damages the unforgiving person, not the offender. Hebrews 12:15 says, "See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many." After the Civil War, Robert E. Lee visited a Kentucky lady who took him to the remains of a grand old tree by her house. She bitterly cried that its limbs and trunk had been destroyed by federal artillery. After a brief silence, Lee said, Cut it down, my dear lady, and forget it. It is better to forgive the injustices of the past than to allow them to remain, to let bitterness take root and poison the rest of your life. What great advice for all of us. Now, I haven't done full justice to this topic, as there is so much more that we could share about forgiving. For instance, if you're struggling to forgive someone for a wrong that was particularly hurtful or possibly happened long ago, there are steps that you can take to help in this journey. And you can speak with me and I can share them with you. Please understand that strong emotion expresses an important point that you only struggle deeply when something precious or valuable has been injured or destroyed. For example, if someone steals 10 cents from me, I would quickly overlook it. But if they stole $10,000 from me, I would struggle with that. Friends, we need to learn what it means not only to forgive, but what those valuable things are to us. Forgiving a debt or crime can be challenging to even the strongest believers especially when the offender will not come clean. However, while closure of the breach may never be fully restored, God calls us to completely forgive. Learning to give and receive forgiveness is a challenging process that requires swallowing our pride but the peace that floods our soul when your relationship with God and others is restored is unspeakable. It's well worth the journey. Last week at the end of my sermon, I said that we uh, would be encouraging you to celebrate communion 
in your own home. One of the magnificent messages of communion is God's payment for our debt. The bread and drink remind us of the body and blood of Jesus, which was broken and spilled to atone or pay for our sin. In taking the bread and drink today, I urge you to focus on your sin and what it cost God. Take time as the elements are passed out to one another to thank him, as the Apostle Paul said, for his gift that is wonderful beyond words. I want to close my message with 1 Peter 1-2. Dear friends, God the Father chose you long ago and knew you would become his children. And the Holy Spirit has been at work in your hearts, cleansing you with the blood of Jesus Christ and making you to please him. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for these two weeks that you've helped us look into forgiveness, what it means, God, to understand what you call us to do. So God, I ask that you would give us the courage to do that. When someone has sinned against us but won't come clean, I pray that you would help us to forgive them regardless. Thank you for the example of Jesus Christ, who even while hanging on the cross, was able to forgive those who put him there. And in fact, God, I helped put him there. So God, thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.